Matthew chapter 17, and we are going to begin reading in verse 14. If you'd like to stand uh, while we read the Word of God, you can. If you're not able to stand or just would would rather sit, that's fine as well. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Father in heaven, please today be near to us. Father, we're asking you to reveal your truth. God, to reveal the the great victory of Jesus. God, reveal to us our need to be engaged in the spiritual warfare. God, help us to be those who, who grab onto your victory by faith and, and who battle against the lies and the deception and the bondage and the ensnarement and the misery that the devil brings. Father, I pray, God, for hope here this morning. I pray, Father, for confidence in you. God, I pray that, that we, might, we might be strong in the Lord and that we might stand firm. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, um, <clears throat> last week, uh, we were in the first of Matthew 17. I, I think it's really significant that in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic Gospels, this passage comes right after the transfiguration. It's because they happened right after each other in, 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 the, in the account, okay? So, so, picture it. Peter, James, and John are on the mountain. This was last week's sermon, by the way. One of the my favorite thing to preach on, the glory of God, okay? So they're, they're up on the mountain. Peter, James, and John are there. And, and God pulls back the curtain. God cracks the door on Jesus' divinity. And they see the majestic glory of Jesus Christ, all right? It is so thrilling. It is so soul-satisfying. It is so joy-bringing that Peter is like, let's never go down. You know, he says, Jesus, if it's okay, let's build a tabernacle for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah and we will just stay here. We'll stay up here. We want to bask in your glory. Well, that is not yet God's plan. One day that's going to happen. One day we will just be in the presence of Jesus, hearts full of joy and satisfaction forever. But we all know that's not yet. And so Jesus brings the disciples down off the mountain, right? So they go from seeing the glory of Jesus, right? And they go down the mountain, and what do they encounter at the bottom of the hill? An argument, first of all. Mark 9 tells us that the, the, the disciples are arguing. There's a crowd, and they're arguing with the, with the scribes. And what they're arguing over is a demon-possessed boy, okay? There's a boy who is suffering miserably because of demonic oppression. And, and, and they come down the mountain into the failure and discouragement of the disciples and the, and the accusations of the scribes, okay? And so what I'd like to do today is I would like to talk to you about that subject of spiritual warfare. Since I went to Africa, when I went to Africa this last year, we, we had to read a, a, a book on spiritual warfare. 
uh, just trying to figure out how do we engage a culture that's been in bondage for 1,600 years uh, of lies and deception? How do we engage a culture that is filled with zoeas and shrines and moss everywhere? How, how do we engage that kind of culture? And so we were, we were wrestling with that. Um, while we were there, we had lots of conversations about spiritual warfare. And then as I came back, God, God did some things, just very clear, I guess, confirmation that I needed to explore this more. So a lot of today, honestly, is, is going to be my wrestlings with and my kind of growth in this area of spiritual warfare. This is not going to be a sermon like I usually preach. I usually just go through the text and we just stay right in there. Um, I'm, we're going to go through the text, but I'm also actually going to jump out of the text a whole bunch, okay? And, and we're going to try to put together what the New Testament says about the topic of demons, the talk, topic of spiritual oppression and spiritual warfare. Now, here, here's the big question today. Is this a big deal? Some people would say it's not a big deal. I would argue that is wrong, okay? So Matthew is the first of four Gospels, okay? The first of, of the accounts of Jesus' life. And, and we're only 17 chapters into this Gospel. And already, I counted last night, 27 verses in, in, in the first 17, of Ma- 17 chapters of Matthew have been devoted to demons, evil, unclean spirits, or the devil, okay? Now, why is there so much in the Bible about demonic attack? Why is there so much in the Bible about demonic oppression? Uh, what, why is that? What is that? Well, what we find here in Matthew chapter 17 is we find a boy who is oppressed, okay? Now, what Matthew tells us is the boy is an epileptic. Now, the word epileptic in our society is very much a medical term describing a medical condition. The word epileptic in Jesus' day, uh, it actually was, was a word that almost meant moonstruck. It, it described a series of symptoms, okay? So it described seizures. It described a series of symptoms. And so people would, would talk about it in that way. So Matthew tells us that this boy often falls into the fire and he falls into the water. And then in verse 18, Jesus rebukes a demon from the boy. So we... We know exactly what is wrong here. It is demonic oppression. Mark in Mark 9 gives us the same story, a little different details. Mark tells us that not only is he an epileptic or not only does he have seizures, but the boy is deaf and mute. Okay, so he can't talk. He can't, he can't speak. He can't hear. The, boy, the spirit, it says, seizes the boy and throws him down. He, he has a self-destruction thing in him. It says he foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. And in fact, in Mark's account, when the spirit sees Jesus, it's really interesting how he describes that he says when the spirit sees jesus the the spirit throws the boy down and it says this demonic attack caused great suffering in the boy and his father and his family okay so when we were in mark a or matthew 8 about four or five months ago we looked at um, matthew 4 24 and it's an interesting verse because it says it, it kind of kind of summarizes jesus ministry and it says that Jesus healed a bunch of sick people. And it gives a bunch of different illnesses, like paralysis and blindness. And, uh, you know, uh, it even mentions epilepsy, other things, other sicknesses, okay? And then it mentions demon possession apart from that, okay? So here's a lesson in that. Sometimes there is a physical condition that is caused simply by a physical condition, right? Sometimes you're just sick. Sometimes you just have heart disease or you have cancer or whatever. And indeed, in the, in the New Testament, Jesus at times healed those people. Sometimes there's a physical condition that has a spiritual root, okay? So, for instance, in Job, if you remember the, the, the story of Job, in Job chapter 2, verse 7, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores. I actually kind of know how Job feels, actually. Um, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. All right, now, now who, what, what's the reason there? It says Satan went out and struck Job, all right? This is a physical condition that is brought out, brought upon by demonic oppression, okay? At other times, the Bible 
describes him almost as intertwined. So this boy has physical symptoms, but he also, his big problem is he is possessed by a demon. Now, here's the thing that I want to avoid in our church, okay? A lot of evangelical Christians have two categories for dealing with the demonic, okay? They have possession. Now, what does possession imply? If you're demonically possessed, it means you're owned, right? You're completely controlled. That cannot happen to a believer. You know why? Because who are we owned by? You're owned by Jesus. The Bible says very clearly he has redeemed you. He has bought you. He has saved you. He's put his spirit in you. You are his. Okay, so a lot of people go with, well, okay, there's possession, but that can't happen to a believer. So they go all the way over here to the other side, and they're like, there's nothing in between. There's either possession or we know the devil can tempt us at times, right? Like he can whisper things. So people kind of imagine, you know, you know that voice in your head, just kill them. The guy, you know, or go have adultery, you know, you know, that kind of, so it's like possession or this, okay, here's what I would describe for you, that is not a good New Testament way to look at spiritual warfare, okay, let, let me read to you, I, I took a quick trip through the New Testament this week, and here's what I found, believers, okay, these are folks that either profess to be or are believers, are able to be influenced by demons, oppressed by demons, tempted by demons, deceived by demons, tormented by demons. These are all words used in the New Testament, used by demons, ensnared by demons. Ananias and Sapphira, not sure what you believe about them, Christian, not Christian. Everybody thought they were Christians, at least, in the church. And, and for them, Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart? How about Peter? Two chapters ago, you remember? He, Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. You remember what Peter says? No, no, you're not. That's a bad idea. That's a bad plan. And Jesus looks at at Peter and says, Satan, get behind me. Right? In some way, Peter is being ensnared. He's being used, okay, by the devil. All right? So that's what we find. So I, I want you to have a better, more thorough look at what is what does the Bible say about spiritual warfare. Now, how is the devil able to accomplish these things in the life of believers and unbelievers, okay? Here are his tactics, all right? So again, this is somewhat topical. Sorry about that, but I really feel like this is what God wants us to do this morning. So how how is the devil able to oppress, okay? Number one, he is a liar, okay? That is the big picture. John 8, says, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. What we see all through the Bible is he lies. He lies about God. He lies about sin, about life, about happiness. He lies about other people. He lies about money, about sex, about marriage, about the church. He lies. He lies particularly about God. The very first instance in the Bible uh, that we see of, of Satan is Genesis 3. And what is he doing? He is lying to Adam and Eve about God, right? Adam and Eve are in a perfect relationship with God. They're in a perfect paradise in the Garden of Eden. And Satan comes in and he lies lies about the character of God. He lies about death. He lies about sin. He lies about disobedience. He is a liar. And when Adam and Eve believe the lie, they die and all the rest of us fall into sin, death, and the grave. The devil is a liar. One of the greatest skills of the Christian life is learning to immerse yourself in the truth to the point that you can spot the lie. I'm telling you, some of you can testify to this I love it that I can look, I'm not, I'm not perfect, I have long ways to go, but I love it that I can look back on my life, and I can see the first 10 years of my Christian life, there were lies that I kept buying into, like, like over and over and over and over again, you know, just, just these subtle things where the devil would be, hey, you shouldn't put up with that, hey, you know that, you know, you need to assert, you need to say something, you need to say, you know, I mean, and I would just buy into them over and over again, and man, praise God, I like, I was just thinking the other day, like, one of those things hit me, and I was like, 
no, 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 no. I, I, I know that deal. I know that. I know that trick, man. No way. That's a lie. And, man, it, it is freeing to be able to immerse yourself in the truth of God to the point that you can begin to spot the lies. I mean, think about it this way. Aren't you glad you don't believe every infomercial, right? If you believed every infomercial, you would have a house full of junk, okay, right? Like, aren't you glad? Like, like whenever I look, whenever I see that commercial, it's like this guy, this dude's got like abs or like, you know, Grand Canyon, you know? And, and, and it's like, you know, five minutes on this and you could have that. I'm like, not a lie, you know? I am not 1995 plus shipping and handing. No way. Because I know that I ain't having abs like that, right? Not unless I quit eating cheeseburgers and that ain't going to happen, right? So aren't you, aren't you glad that in other areas you learn to spot the lie? So much more important spiritually. So much more important that you start to not believe the lies of the devil. So number one, how does the devil, what's his tactic? He is a liar. Number two, and this I think is the most prevalent one. It's the most prevalent one that I see in my office. He is the accuser of the brethren. Okay, Revelation 23 and 8, that's, that's a name. The Bible says, here's the name we're putting on Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. You know why? Because he accuses. I, I bet you once a week for the last 22 years here at Lincoln Avenue, I have had people in my office who claim to be believers, and they will say things like this. I'm worthless. God's tired of me. He's tired of my mistakes. There's no hope for me. I'm mess, I've messed up too much. God won't forgive me. I'm not worthy to serve. I'm not worthy to share the gospel. I don't know enough. Everyone is laughing at me. No one could ever love me. I have no friends. I'm ugly. Who are they hearing that from? That is not God. God does not say things like that. In fact, he says very opposite things. But yet consistently I have Christians in my office who say those things. You know why? They're believing the accuser of the brethren. They're believing that they're beyond forgiveness. They're believing they're beyond redemption. They're believing that God will not use them. They're believing that they're not worthy of this or that or whatever. And that they ought to just quit. This self-pity that is the opposite of biblical thankfulness that destroys lives. Man, there is a song out right now. It is my favorite. It's called Who You Say I Am. I have listened to it at least once a day for the last couple weeks. In fact, there was one evening where I sat down with my headphones and I just pulled it up on YouTube. I bet I watched the, the music video of it five times, you know, and, and the words are spectacular. Well, we, we, we sing it here some, but, but it, here, let me read it to you. Who the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. And here's the line that makes the song. I am who you say I am. That is biblical. I am who you say that I am. Man, I stop people in my office when they get off on this. I'm ugly, no friends, God's not playing. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you're a believer, then you need to go back to Ephesians 1, and you need to read what God says about you. And that's what you believe. I am who he says that I am. Number three, he disguises himself as an angel of light. That's 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Some of these we're just going to breeze through because i got a bunch to cover here. Okay, uh, Last week we looked at this one. He blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ. Remember 2 Corinthians 4, 4? That's what the devil does. That One of the devil's schemes, one of his organized uh, efforts is to make God boring to you. Okay, here, Here's what the devil's going to do. 
God boring, everything else exciting. God unattractive, everything else attractive. God unappealing, everything else uh, appealing. God not exciting, everything else exciting. That's what he's going to try to turn your eyes to look at worthless things. One of the verses I say with my children in the morning on the way to school, Psalm 119, 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Why does it say turn? Why is the guy asking God to turn his eyes? It's almost like he's saying, God, grab my face and turn it to where I need to be looking, right? Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways, okay? So Satan wants to blind your mind to the awesome nature of Jesus. Next, he captures people and ensnares them to do his will. That's 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. Um, It's in the section about pastors and about shepherding. And he says there are people that are captured. They are ensnared by the lies of the devil in order to do his will. Next, we know that the devil and demons are organized. Okay, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, have you ever realized it says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers and spiritual uh, forces in the heavenly places. In other words, there's an organized effort against us. We know that the devil is urgent in his work. Revelation 12, 12 says he knows his time is short, and so he's at full press. Listen, if you're not at full press, he is. Have you ever watched a basketball game where one team was at full press and the other wasn't? It's a lot of scoring on one side, okay? He knows his time is short. All right, so those are his tactics, okay? Now, what do we know about our defense? Well, we know this. Jesus had given his disciples authority. Do you remember back in Matthew 10? I'm assuming you remember a bunch of this stuff. You're like, we don't remember what you preach, you know? Um, Matthew 10, Jesus gave authority. Before he sent out the 70, he gave authority to his disciples over the demons, right? So why in the world does he come down off the mountain and they're not able to cast this one out? They, they, they can't do anything. They're helpless here. Well, let's, let's, let's review the situation. So they come down off the mountain. What do they find? Mark 9 says they find a, a, a c- c- crowd where the scribes are arguing with the disciples. And they're arguing over the fact that these disciples cannot cast out this demon-possessed boy. All right, and Jesus gets upset with that. And in Matthew 17, he says, in verse 17, he says, Jesus answered, O faithless, twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. All right? So Jesus gets upset. You know, you know why he's upset? Because nobody's doing anything with the boy. Here's what happened. The disciples tried, and they quit. And now all they're doing is arguing with the scribes. The scribes just want to discredit Jesus. That's what they did the whole New Testament. About, about why they couldn't. See, they're arguing instead of praying. They're arguing instead of believing. If I were to preach just this text, I I think I'd do it this way. Maybe I'll do it again someday. No faith, little faith, and faith mixed with unbelief. Okay? So in verse 17, the scribes have no faith. In verse 20, the disciples have little faith. That's the problem. When, when, when When they say, why couldn't we do it, Jesus? Verse 20, he says, he said to them, because of your little faith. If we go into Mark chapter 9, there's this great conversation between Jesus and the boy's father, okay? So the boy's father comes to Jesus, and he says, you know, can you help my son? You know, he's casting the fire and the water to destroy him. If you can do anything, have compassion on him. Did you hear what he said? If you can do anything. He is standing before the king of kings, and he says, if you can do anything. I love Jesus' response. If. If you can, you know? And then he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
See, the problem here, the problem, the reason there's defeat in this situation is because of unbelief. And Mark 9 and verse 29 goes further. And Jesus says, this kind comes out only through prayer. The reason they could not battle this spiritual battle is because of a lack of faith and a lack of prayer. And by the way, those two go hand in hand. John Calvin said, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Have you ever noticed that when you're prayerless, it's because you're faithless? That, that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's absolutely true. Whenever we find ourselves not praying, whenever we find ourselves not given to prayer, the root of that is because we are not confident in Jesus. We are not rejoicing in Jesus. We are not depending upon Jesus. And, and so the reason the disciples could not deal with this spiritual battle was because of a lack of faith that led to a lack of prayer. And Jesus is saying, you couldn't do it because you weren't believing and you weren't praying. The Bible teaches that our weapons in the spiritual war are directly tied to believing Jesus, to confidence in Jesus, to dependence and rejoicing on Jesus. In fact, what Jesus says in verse 20 is he says, if you have faith, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you're going to say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Have you noticed how many times Jesus uses that little analogy about moving mountains? Okay, Have you ever asked yourself why you'd want to move a mountain? You know, and where would you move it? I was out in the oil pitch yesterday and I was going over this passage with the guy and I, and I said that. I said, you know, why, why would anybody want to move a mountain? He said, I said, I said, where would you put it? And he said, I'd put it on Washington, D.C., you know. I was like, my daughter lives there, you know. Let's tell her first, okay, you know. But why, why would you want to move? Well, obviously you wouldn't, okay, except for there's a lot of stuff in the Panhandle of Texas that we could just move and put one there and it'd be a lot closer to go ski and hike and stuff. But anyway, that's just selfish recreation. But the point is this. It's not that, it's not that we're supposed to move mountains. It's Jesus is saying there are things that seem impossible to you that are possible in Christ. The Bible says nothing is impossible for God. Okay? So, so the reason that, that they were not able to deal with the spiritual situation is because they were not trusting God. And they're not trusting God. They're not depending upon Him. They're not believing God. Led to them not persisting in prayer. In 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9, there's this passage about resisting the devil. And it says in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse 9 says, resist him. How? How do we resist him? How do we resist him? Look, look, look. Resist him firm in your faith. You see how we resist him? Firm in your faith. That, that was the problem in Matthew 17. They were not firm in their faith. And because they were not firm in their faith, they did not persist in prayer. My friends, we must persist. Here's the deal about the spiritual battle. Jesus has given the victory, and you must believe that, and then you must persist. You must persevere. Let me talk to the men. Men. If you knew, men, if you knew that there were thugs that were driving up from somewhere and they were going to attack your family, if you knew there were thugs coming and they had guns and they had knives, they had weapons and they were coming to attack your family, let me ask you, how long would you persist to defend them? A couple hours maybe? A little shootout and finally you're like, these guys aren't going away. Okay, just come on in. I quit. I think you would say, I would defend my family to the death. I would never quit. All right, there's something more real than that that's happening right now. Why would you quit then? That's, that's a real question because there's a lot of Christians who are quitting. 
There's a lot of people that are not persisting in prayer. There's a lot of people that do not have confidence in God. There's a lot of people that have settled for misery and the oppression of the evil one. Why did you quit? Faith persists. Listen, if the devil has a foothold in your marriage, if he has a foothold in your, in your family, if he has a foothold with your children, if he has a foothold with, in your, with your friendships, my people, fight. Will you not fight? Will you not persist? Will you not believe in the gospel and the power of Jesus? And will you not engage that? I know a lady who had a horrific thing happen in their marriage was the worst season of their lives. There was only one of them in the marriage that was battling. It was just her. And I so love this lady's testimony. She would not let go of Jesus. And she fought. And she, she persisted. And she obeyed. And she submitted. And she rejoiced. And she praised. And she, she tells the testimony of waiting till her husband would go to sleep at night. And then getting up and say, she said, I don't know why I put my hands over him. But I just felt like it's the right thing to do. You know? She said, put my hands over him. And I would just pray. And I just persisted at night after night, month after month. Just persisted. Today, that couple has the most beautiful marriage I think I've ever seen. You know why? Somebody believed Jesus, and they wouldn't quit. Isn't that awesome? They wouldn't settle. They, would, they wouldn't give up and start arguing with, this, with the scribes. No, they, they held on to Jesus, and they persisted. I, I love Winston Churchill. He's a cool guy back in World War II. And I love the speech that he gave. The Haro School of Boys. This is part of it. Never give in. Here's what he told them. Never give in. Remember, this is when the, when the Nazis were just sweeping through Europe, bulldozing everyone. It's 1941. And he says to them, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Churchill was applying it to the Nazis. I would say it applies more to the spiritual battle that we wage. I mentioned footholds. I, I said just a moment ago, if, if Satan has a foothold in your marriage, if he has a foothold in your family, if he has a foothold in, in, in your relationships, what do I mean by foothold? That's actually a biblical term, okay? So, so, for instance, in Ephesians 4, it says, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your, on your anger, and do not give the devil, and remember what it says in the ESV, opportunity, okay? That word opportunity, if you look that up in the Greek, you know what it means? It means a place to stand, a piece of ground. It means, here's what it means, a place at the table, a place in the room. Okay, so, so in other words, he's saying, he's saying, don't give the devil a place. Do not, as you're gathered around your table, do not say, hey, we've got a place for you here. Do not open your door as you're gathered in your living room and say, hey, we've got a place for you. We want you to come and be with us. We're giving you ground in our life. That's exactly what that word means. Okay, so, so what are ways in which the devil gets ground in your life? And by the way, I'm not talking about this boy. We're, we're kind of departing from the past. I, I don't know what caused this. I, I don't know. We don't know anything about him. The Bible doesn't say there's no way for us to know. So there's no way to, why even, we shouldn't even speculate. But, but I'm saying here, as I look through the New Testament and the Old Testament, here's what I see. We give Satan ground in our life in the following areas. Okay, number one, unbelief. Okay, unbelief. 
It's Genesis 3. Okay? Basically, what did Eve do? Eve pulled up a chair at the table, right? Before, it was she and Adam and God, and they trusted him. And whatever he did, they said, and they lived in harmony, and they lived in joy. And the devil comes, and he's like, man, you're missing out. Man, God doesn't, he's holding back from you. He doesn't know what's best for you. And as soon as Eve doubted God, what she did, she pulled up a table, pulled up a chair. Hey, you can have a place here. Listen. Whenever you know what God has said, and this is some of us guys, whenever you know what God has said, and you actively, intentionally say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it. God, I know you said this. I'm not going to do it. I, I know you told me to do this. I'm not going to do it. For whatever reason, whatever my excuse is, whatever my whatever is, I'm not. Folks, when you do that, you give the devil a place to stand. You give him a foothold in your life. Number two, unforgiveness. This one, if I only, if I, if you said, hey, pastor, you can only give one foothold. This would be the one I'd give you, okay? Because this is the one I most prevalently see in the church, unfortunately. Well, this one in isolation, but anyway, unforgiveness. You know, I think unforgiveness is the most. So, so, 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says this. He's, he's telling the church they've got to forgive. They've got to forgive this guy who's hurt everybody. He's done something terrible. We're not sure exactly what it was. But he says this in verse 10. He says, I also forgive indeed if I've forgiven, I, if I've forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So he's telling him you've got to forgive. And then in verse 11 he says, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Hear what he says? He says, you've got to forgive because if you don't, We'll be outwitted by Satan. We will give Satan a foothold. The verse I read just a minute ago, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down. By the way, how, how often does the sun go down? We all know that, don't we? It's once a day. Be angry, do not sin, do not give, or do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And then what's the next part? And give no place to the devil. I, under the inspiration of the authority of God's word, I warn you against unforgiveness. I warn you against holding a grudge, not settling it, not taking it to the cross. I warn you against, I know that we can't always work things out with people right away. You can't always do that before the sun goes down. You can get your heart right with Jesus. You can put their sin on the cross. You cannot harbor anger. And I warn you, if you do, you give the devil a place to stand. I, I, have, I have done counseling with people who got a divorce, and there was no reason for the divorce. There was no big event. There was no big sin. There was no big crisis. There was, you know what there was? There were decades of small offenses that were not forgiven. You, you invited the devil in, and he will destroy you. And he will destroy your marriage. Unforgiveness. Fourthly, thirdly, secondly. I, I, I didn't number these. The occult. I hope maybe you're numbered. The occult. This is kind of obvious, but I feel like I ought to mention it. Deuteronomy 18 warns against uh, associating with anyone who practices divination. This is verse uh, uh, 10. Um, 
Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who requires for the dead, whoever does these things, an abomination of the Lord because of the abomination of the Lord you guys drive me out. Anyway, I don't know that this one would have been that big a deal to me 20 years ago, but I cannot believe the increase in the New Age movement and the occult. I can't believe the number of Christians who read New Age stuff and don't distinguish it from the Bible. I, I, people send me stuff, <laughs> mostly ladies, honestly. But they'll send me stuff, and, it, and it's like it's like packed full of just New Age. And they're, they're acting like, hey, this is the best thing ever. No, it's not. When I was little, I remember one show that had any kind of supernatural element. It was that gal that did the, her nose like, da 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 Remember that? Yeah. I, she's a pretty nice witch, by the way. She did mostly good stuff. I think all good stuff. Man, now there is a whole industry of occult. There's a whole industry of paranormal activity. There's a whole industry of demonic elements and movies and music. And man, I, that, that is something to be careful of. Isolation. I think this is four. Footholds. Isolation. So I, I see this. You see it. Okay? Person gets discouraged, right? They, 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 don't, they don't persist in prayer. They, they, they lose faith in God. My friends, what is the always next step? What do they do? What do they do? They get discouraged. They lose hope. Man, I'm not going to persist. I've lost my confidence in Jesus. And then they isolate. Pull away from the body of Christ. Pull away from their small group. Pull away from their Christian relationships. Pull away from their DT. Friends, there is, there is a measure of protection in the spiritual battle in fellowship. 1 Corinthians. This is a really interesting verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a guy who's being disciplined by the church. It's a guy who is living in, in, in rampant immorality that he will not repent of. And so Paul is telling the church, you need to, you need to separate that guy. You need, you need to separate from him. You can't leave him in the assembly. Listen to the way he describes that. This is a fascinating verse. He says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Do you see the way he describes it? He says, To be outside of the fellowship, what happens? I mean, you just you lost a measure of your protection. Satan's going to hammer you. My friends, do not isolate yourselves. Believe the Bible. Fifth, sexual morality. Wish we had time to look at the story of Balaam and Balak. First of all, it's just a—it's kind of a funny story if it weren't so tragic. Uh, you got the donkey at the beginning, right? And then you got—you got these guys that hire this kind of sorcerer dude to curse God's people. He goes up on all these hills trying to curse them. And you remember what happens? Every time he gets up there, like the Spirit of God comes on him, and he's got to bless them, <laughs> you know? And so they paid this guy money to curse Israel, and, and every time he gets up there, he just blesses them. They're like, ah, you know? So they take him to another mountain. We'll do it from here. Ah, he can't do it, you know? And, and so, like, that all fails. And then the next chapter, Numbers 25, I believe it is, the very next chapter, it says, so the people of the surrounding nations, Moab, these nations that hired this guy, you know what they do? They invite the men of Israel to their idolatrous feasts and they begin to partake in sexual morality. And 24,000 Israelites die in a plague. 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 says really interesting things about sexual morality and the uniqueness of the sin. Samson. There's, there's lots of, of passages that show that 
Sexual morality particularly gives a foothold to the devil. Substance abuse. This is a pretty obvious one, but you know the Bible says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Whenever you give control, like, like you, you relinquish control of your faculties to something else, that's really dangerous. Ancestral sin. I'm, I'm sorry, I've got to go fast. Ancestral sin. Best, best example of this is Jeroboam. Have you ever read through the Kings section? You know that First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. It's got all those kings, right? Well, in the Northern Kingdom, there's a guy named Jeroboam. He could have been a great king, actually, but he made this this horrendous mistake, this sin against God, in creating this idolatrous temple in the north. Okay, every other king, his son, his grandson, his great grandson, his great great grandson, his great 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 great, all until their line was gone. Every boy that grew to be king after that. No matter what it says about him, it finishes with this. But he fell into the sin of his father, Jeroboam. I mean, this guy's sin was spread through his entire family for generations. I think think there are things in your family that ingrain patterns that can be a foothold for the devil that you need to repent of and you need to change. False teaching, all that. Okay, all right, so... Uh, i got to buy my time here. Having said all that, okay, those are ways so the devil gets foothold in your life. Please, please remember this big deal. This is, this is the big thing. In Christ, we have the victory, okay? Has everybody got that? In Christ, we have the victory. Like the Bible is super clear about that. 1 Peter 8 and 9, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Romans 16, 20, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Hebrews 2, 14, Jesus died and rose again to destroy the one who had the power of death. Colossians 2, 15, Jesus triumphed over the spiritual rulers. We have the victory in Christ. When Paul talks about spiritual warfare, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, okay? Jesus has the victory. I want you to make sure you hear that. He has the victory, and we are joined to him by faith. Therefore, we can be confident in the victory of Christ. But we must not give the devil a foothold, and we must use our offensive weapons in the battle. Okay? In the battle to stand firm. In that Ephesians 6 passage, it says over and over again, stand firm, stand firm. What does stand firm mean? Don't give ground. Okay, so how do you not give ground? Okay, real quick, here's here's our offensive weapons. Number one, Confess and repent of your sin. If you have sin in your life, you cannot harbor that. You cannot harbor that. We try sometimes, don't we? Man, I'm so thankful for church. (laughs) You know, I'm so thankful that uh, I don't miss many Sundays, you know. And and I'm so thankful that there's been time after time, you know, where I've, I've come. And man, as we start to sing, you know, the Spirit of God brings some sort of conviction upon me for something. I confess and immediately get that right. And honestly, if there's a way for me to make some gesture of fruit in that, I do, right? Like I want to confess it to the Lord, and then I want to show that my heart is right. Sometimes I can't do that right away, like because of whatever it deals with. But I want to confess and repent and then immediately bear fruit in the right direction. Confession and repentance of sin. That's the way that you keep the devil from having ground in your life. And number two, I, I threw this in because I, I think it's a neglected one. Singing the word of God. Man, it's interesting. The power of gospel song, truth-saturated song against the schemes of the devil. When we were in Africa, 
one of the things that I felt so good about was we, we, we would go everywhere we went. We would, we would actually, we changed our tactic this year. Last year, we kind of avoided the real places we thought were hot spots, right? And we just tried to, you know, find people in there. This time, we, we just went right to them. Like, like there, you know, we, the, there's a fourth holiest place in all of Islam that's in the country we were in. And we, and we just, we, that's the first place we went. You know, and we, there's the, the biggest mosque there. We went there, you know. And when we would go to the Zawais, we'd go to the shrines. Yeah, sometimes we could go in, sometimes they wouldn't let us in. You know, and, and while we were there, we're speaking truth. And in a few of them, where there, there, was, there was opportunity, where there wasn't anybody else around, we would sing. We, we would sing. We would sing about Jesus. One time we were kind of up on a mountain. There wasn't anybody close. We sang loud. Over the, over the, the grave of this dead person that, that people have been coming for thousands of years, all the women were walking around it because they believed that it kept their children from having handicaps. We're up there, and we're. I think there's something powerful. I think there's something powerful in Paul and Silas in prison in the Philippian jail, singing at midnight. I think there's something powerful in Second Chronicles 20, where where Israel sends out the choir in the battle first, and as they begin to sing, God routes the enemy. I think there's something powerful about song, gospel, true, saturated song. Now let's go to Ephesians six. All right, so. It tells you, be strong in the Lord. We wrestle against the schemes of the devil. Okay, what should you do? Put on the belt of truth. All right, so here are your spiritual weapons. Truth. Put on the blessed plate of righteousness. What's your spiritual weapon? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. You appropriating that righteousness as your own and then living it out. Okay, what are our weapons? It says the readiness of the gospel of peace. The gospel ought to be on your lips. If you cannot readily articulate the gospel, you need to get help. Okay, you need to get, get, to some, get to your small group leader, get to your Sunday school teacher, get to a pastor, come to me. You need to be able to articulate the gospel. There is power in believing the gospel, appropriating the gospel, okay? Shield of faith. Again, we've already talked about it. Faith, confidence, dependence, rejoicing, delighting in God. There is power in faith. Helmet of salvation, your own salvation. Sword of the Spirit, it's the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, prayer. Those are the weapons by which we are able to stand strong. One more passage, then I'm done. James. Okay, I, w- I want to show you that this is everywhere. Okay, so I just showed it to you in Ephesians. Now let's look at it again in James. Okay, so in James, there's this verse in verse 7. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a pretty cool verse, isn't it? Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Okay, so what do we do, James? How do, how do we get that done? Okay, so if we go back a verse, in verse 6... It says, um, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So how do we do this? Number one, we're humble, okay? We take a posture of humility toward God and others, okay? Then let's go down to verse 7. We submit ourselves, therefore, to God. What does submit yourself to God mean? It means you put yourselves under His authority. That means you obey Him. That means if He said, give, you give. If He said, go, you go. If He said, pray, you pray. If He said, forgive, you forgive. If He said, don't be bitter, you don't be bitter. If He said, Sing, you sing. Like, like you submit yourself under the authority of God. Okay? You resist the devil and he will flee from you. Next verse, verse 8. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Isn't it interesting that the greatest weapons we have are just staying close to Jesus? Isn't that right? Stay close to Jesus. In fact, in, in Matthew 12, there's this interesting passage about Jesus says, if a demon is cast out of a person and they, they clean up their life, right, but they don't fill their life with anything, do you remember what he says happens? 
So that dude comes back with seven friends. And the guy's seven times worse than he was before. you got to fill your life with Jesus. This sermon was not meant, like, to scare. In fact, I think what I wanted it to do was embolden. I, 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 I want you to be bold. Interesting thing, in, in most all the cases where I've dealt with somebody that I actually thought was demon-possessed, I've not been afraid. Um, now, I'll just be honest. Sometimes I do pray with my eyes open because I want to see what's going to happen, okay? Um, but, like, I, I'm not afraid to engage that. You, you know why I'm not afraid? Because I'm prepared. <laughs> like, I go in there. What am I doing? I am radically dependent on Jesus. I am calling out on Jesus. I am praying the whole time. You see, that keeps you safe. When you're in danger is when you're putting distance between you and God. And you're harboring your sin. And you're, you're ignoring Him and you're not listening to Him. And you're giving ground. Man, that's when you ought to be fearful. Because Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I think we should believe Him. Guys, we've got the victory in Christ. Let's, let's believe and let's persist. Father in heaven, I thank you for your goodness to us. God, I thank you for sending your son to live the perfect life and then to die a death in our place that we might have the righteousness of Christ, that we might have victory over, over death, sin, and the grave. God, I thank you, Jesus, that you have God, that you have have purchased us and redeemed us. Father, I thank you that, that you have power over the demonic host, over the enemies of righteousness. God, help us to believe. Help us to be confident. Help us to persist in prayer. God, please don't let us give up. God, don't let us give up in the spiritual battle. Don't let us, don't let us give up on children. God, don't let us give up on, on marriages. Don't let us give up on parents. Don't let us give up on friendships. God, don't let us give up on people. But God, help us to engage the spiritual battle with confidence and faith in you. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name.